This podcast is brought to you by axe catching. Axe catching. Because any chump can throw an axe, but surely your concept of stereotypical masculinity is worth three or four fingers. Axe catching. Show them you're a man. Or something. Whatever. <laughs> How do people actually, like, get involved? Is there, like, a website that they have to go to? www.thatsfuckingstupid.com <laughs> uh, Well done. Dot, well done. I don't need all my fingers. Hashtag, or no, I don't, I don't yeah. have anything else. Shouldn't it be a shorter website if you're missing things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long yeah. time to type it. It's just www.ac.com. Axe catching, because that's really all you've got fingers for at that point. Well then. It's just pointer and thumb. That's all you got. <laughs> back to marginally significant we're going to be talking about evolutionary psychology and and really kind of i don't know more like that's a ridiculously broad topic to to cover so we're really going to focus on does um taking more of an evolutionary perspective um are there instances where that actually informs predictions about behavior novel predictions things that we wouldn't have necessarily um thought of beforehand without taking an, an, an evolutionary perspective um does that help us to inform our predictions about behavior? And so, um, one of the one of the criticisms of um, evolutionary psych is that um, it, it might um, like you can always make after the fact reasonings, like just so stories. Yeah, yeah, just so stories. Exactly. Once you see a phenomenon, then you say oh, well, the reason this phenomenon exists is because of X, Y, and Z. You know, the, the reason that people do this after the fact is because of this. But but are, are there instances, and maybe there are, but, but we're not really sure, of, are there instances where it actually helps to inform a prediction? Something that, like, you know, hey, most other people wouldn't have thought of, but once you take that evolutionary perspective, you realize that this might, or this must be the way that it is. Um, so I don't even know how we're going to uh, start this. I think, Chris, you, you're you're the most well-informed in terms of the evolutionary perspective. Um, yes. I'm, I'm totally going to like derail your thought process right now. Maybe before getting into uh, kind of the basics of it, maybe just describing a little bit of, of kind of your background, though, might be interesting of kind of why you have the particular kind of stance that you do. Because I, I think if I remember correctly, some of your um, um, PhD training was in some kind of USA, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't. So I'll start by saying I don't know if I'm going to take the stance that uh, like a hard stance on why EP should always be used or uh, as you put it like it must be this if there's an evolutionary explanation yeah uh, I will say though that I think we can get some insight and we can get some predictive power from thinking from these evolutionary frameworks mm-hmm. uh, like you said the problem is when you do that in reverse yeah as is this problem with p-hacking um, <laughs> but yeah to get to my training uh, so I do come from a very strong evolutionary background um, I went to Oakland University in Michigan and uh, work with some folks there um, that are kind of cutting edge researchers, I guess you could say, in evolutionary psychology. Um, but I was actually working with Virgil Ziegler Hill, who is a, uh, I guess you could say, more of a personality psychologist by training. I don't want to uh, ascribe labels to him, so he, <laughs> yeah. he can do that himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say my training was more personality and uh, the self and romantic relationships from an evolutionary point of view. Um, but in my training, I was involved in studies that were, you know, solely evolutionarily focused. You know, for a good example of this uh, is the sperm competition studies that I was involved in. Like, 
that was solely testing what uh, biological mechanisms for sperm competition that we see in other non-human animal species. And what is sperm humans. competition for people who don't? Yeah, know so we can un- we can unpack that a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, in a broad sense, the idea is that uh, sperm competition occurs when the sperm cells from two rival males. Occupy, occupies the reproductive tract of a single female. Right? So that's assuming that there's been uh, you know multiple copulations for all parties involved. Right? And we see a lot of evidence for this in uh, you know non-human species. And of course, there's all sorts of things like mate choice. Um, cryptic mate choice is what some people also talk about. Um, you know, uh, ducks, for example, are really a good example of this because they're often you know multiple copulations. There's all sorts of mechanisms. Um, but the idea in a broad sense is that the sperm from the rival males are competing for access to the assumedly fertile eggs of the female. Uh, And we see in non-humans that there are a number of physiological aspects in terms of uh, the penis, but there's also some um, physiological aspects in terms of the sperm and its motility, all the way down to how acidic the seminal fluid is. Um, And in early work in human sperm competition, one idea was that there are what's called kamikaze sperm, uh, which effectively kind of seek out uh, potential rivals and destroy them if they're not of the same genetic material. Um, in, in my head, by the way, I'm picturing like sperm like, punching <laughs> each other on their way down towards the egg. They're just like yeah. you know, trying to hit each other and it's that like, competition and that sort of thing. Right, yeah, and some of it is just like pure motility. So mm-hmm. how quick do they move? Um, there's also, uh, again, some physiological uh, adaptations or proposed physiological adaptations. Uh, there have been studies that suggest that uh, the shape of the human penis, the length of copulation, these are all things that uh, function to eject rival sperm to ensure that the only sperm in the reproductive tract are that of the person currently copulating. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were testing some of that. Uh, again, we're kind of taking what we saw in non-human uh, species uh, and also do a, kind of replicating some of the work from Baker and Bellis, who were some of the original folks that uh, did human sperm competition studies. Uh, The study I was involved in was kind of one of the preliminary ones, uh, relatively simple. Um, Interesting that we're talking about implicit attitudes because the idea was to kind of prime people that their partner may have cheated. Um, So we give them a scenario where um, they're either told that their partner spent a bunch of money uh, or their partner had just had sex with someone outside of the relationship but wanted to make the relationship work uh, and wanted to continue building the relationship and the idea there was that that should be an elicitor of sperm competition and we should see an upregulation uh, in sperm count, motility, quality of the sperm, all of those sorts of things. Um, so those predictions were solely driven by um, kind of these comparisons across species, what we've seen in, you know, in other species, and then also um, just in a broad sense, uh, an evolutionary perspective on reproduction and what happens and what's successful. And, um, you know, we were testing the psychological mechanisms of this by um, giving them those primes. But I would say, you know, it was, it was solely evolutionarily focused. And um, everything that we did in that study and everything I think that they're still doing in subsequent studies 
cases derive from what previous studies have shown in evolutionary, excuse me, in evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology more broadly. This is a little bit of an, of an aside, but I'm just super curious. Did they, did you guys find support for that idea that, that those primes actually made a difference? So I, I think we would need a better measure. Uh, I say we broadly. Um, I'm no longer directly involved in this, um, but uh, I know uh, Todd and the folks there are, are picking up on this. Uh, but yeah, it was, it wasn't very clear. Uh, some of that could be sample size. I think um, some of that could be <laughs> constraints um, elsewhere in the study. But um, it, it, long story short, it didn't seem like, at least in this one study, there was much. Yeah. Um, other studies have suggested that there is upregulation. Baker and Bella suggested that. I know there's some other um, folks outside of the United States that are doing some of this work. Um, but yeah, that, that first paper was broadly uh, inconclusive, but yeah. I, I don't think it's enough to totally throw out the idea. Yeah. But I think that's, that's a good it, it, um, uh, like example of a situation where I'm not entirely sure where, what it means to say that those were informed, those ideas were informed by evolutionary psychology. Because okay. when, I, when I see that, you, you know, you would say like, oh, okay, hey, that makes sense that people who are feeling threatened as if their their significant other um, um, cheated on them, whatever it is, that then that would change their, you know, sperm mobility or, or whatever. Yeah. Sperm um, just become punchier. Yeah, their sperm <laughs> are punchier, so they have punchier sperm. Um, so so I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, yeah. I would say, well, no, somebody who has just punchier sperm all the time, that actually is what you would see really right. a lot better. So, so really, it's not a case that we should have well, no. selectively punchy sperm. No, no, no. I, I, th- I think we would expect to see selectively punchy sperm because, so like, if you're if you're mating in a situation where like you're the only one copulating, mm-hmm. then your sperm can be relatively lazy, yeah. I guess, in that case. But if you are worried mm-hmm. that you may be competing, right? Yes. Um, but, but that but that requires you to know that they might be competing. It, it, it doesn't. Well, it, <laughs> it has to have a conscious because you're but, if, if yeah. you even just worry. So if you if you have a well, suspicion, yeah, no, to worry. yeah, yeah. So it, uh-huh. But that, that requires you to be suspicious. There are going to be times where you don't know. You're not even sp- suspicious of it. I would say those times. Well, then you're screwed because um, bad just words. But but you're 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 screwed in that instance because you're, you're not even suspicious. So therefore, apparently your sperm aren't as punchy. So really, what would be the best is why not just have your your sperm punchy all the time? That would be the best case scenario, right? So uh, a couple of things. Um... <laughs> sperm are punchy is one. <laughs> so. We would we would assume at some level that across biological males there's going to be differences in sperm quality, mm-hmm. right? We would assume that to be punchiness. true, true yeah. punchiness. In the same way that we would assume that multiple individuals of a species are more or less fit for their environment, okay. right? Mm-hmm. But that in and of itself doesn't rule out the possibility that there can be some fluctuations yeah. in that. Um, so from baseline, people might move around and. And if there are those, in this case, with this particular study, primes, or if there are other things in the environment that signal that, then we would expect an upregulation. So when I initially jumped in and said, no, it doesn't matter, like you should, it doesn't, we don't need a psychological mechanism for this. It's because we know that there are, in humans, but in, you know, even more so maybe in non-human species, there are a lot of um, just simple things in the environment or things that happen physiologically that signal that. Um, so 
for example, if you look across species and you look at testes size, uh, species that are more sexually promiscuous, uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we tend to see that a, a difference in testes size uh, in those species. Um, is there like we're getting derailed by by punchy sperm, but that's okay. Um, is there a downside to my sperm being punchy? That's what I was about to get into. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, so you have to think about it as as with anything. We have a limited resource, right? We we consume calories to sustain everything that we need to do, um, and you know from those calories, from the raw energy that we have, so to speak, all of these different functions are derived, uh, and we would only have so much energy to put towards mm. different things. So it's kind of a zero something. You put something over here and you don't have uh, the space for it here. Um, although even human males are pretty actively producing sperm, it still yeah. is costly. There's still some, you know, nutritional and otherwise physiological cost of producing sperm, right? which is why we have the storage system that we do. Um, but if you produced too much, uh, too regularly, and particularly in situations where fertility was much lower, mm-hmm. you've basically wasted that resource. Is the line of logic, or would be the gotcha. thinking there? Uh, so you, you've you've spent a biological good that could have had a higher, to use a business term, return on investment yeah. at a different yeah. point. Yeah, which I mean, but you would have to say like the cost associated with um, producing punchy sperm. <laughs> this is such a weird statement, but it, the cost associated it is is not worth the the benefit of always having punchy sperm. I would just again, I would just say like I, I think that if you were to take an evolutionary perspective, again I'm, I'm taking a naive perspective, but wouldn't you say that you would just like it would be better to always just have like like it would be better to always have punchy sperm because the cost associated with it is so minimal. Because I, I I mean I get it that yes there's a cost is that yes that I need to consume a couple extra calories here and there. But but I can't imagine that it's going to be a really huge drain on my calorie consumption uh, um, that I'm going to have to consume so many more calories in order to, to have punchy sperm every single time that wouldn't it just be better to have that all the time so it's not going to be this ability to upregulate and downregulate and really conserve and whatnot I don't know maybe I'm getting off uh, yeah so, so so I wonder like we've, we've gone down like a yeah I know, we really did uh, go down a black hole. rabbit hole yeah um, but but I want to give like Chris a a, yeah. a, a chance to answer it. But but then I I have like a separate question. Okay. Uh, so this might be indirect, but it would track some of the same things. Yeah. Uh, so humans are a very unique example in the fact that there's what some people call cryptic mate choice or concealed ovulation is part of it, right? But in uh, other species where ovulation is not concealed, so a kind of classic example is some of the ape species, baboons that have swelling and. And changes in color, right? That is a that's a signal for the males in that troop to attempt to copulate, and that's where you tend to see a lot of competition between males. Right. Uh, without that signal present, they're not as motivated. Um, so what I'm getting at is, you could say having punchy sperm or having potent sperm regularly would be along the lines of having sex regularly. Uh, and in those species where there is very clear signs of ovulation, they're selective, right? They're selective, and when they Copulate and when mm-hmm. they don't, um, and of course the the more fit males tend to have a better chance. Um, in humans, though, because ovulation is concealed, um, there's that. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, that strategy changes a little bit. Um, and there are people that talk about 
uh, I don't necessarily like this term, but this idea of the topping off hypothesis. Uh, so one idea is that one reason why men are interested in having sex regularly with committed partners is it's kind of a, a topping off of the, the sperm that may or may not be present at times where the male or the female, I'm sorry, may or may not be <laughs> um, may, or might, may or may not be fertile. Um, but what they tend to suggest there is that in those topping off periods, the sperm count is actually lower. Um, and I think another way that people would argue against having high quality, potent or punchy mm-hmm. sperm regularly is that uh, there's also benefits to copulating wi- uh, widely. Uh, or you could kind of stratify yourself genetically by mating with multiple people, uh, at least if you're a male or the, spe- the, the sex that has less investment. Um, whereas it might be worthwhile to have quality sperm if you're solely monogamous, right? But even that, I think that that's that's even a really shaky argument. That's a weak argument. Um, all that to say, I think that there, there are other cost-benefit trade-offs and there are um, a lot of benefits of being selective to when you invest in things like sex and reproduction. Yeah, I mean, and so, so yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. For once, I actually um, agree with what Monroe was saying of maybe we should get off the punchy sperm. Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. But, um, but yeah, but so you were saying that you have like another, like kind of more general question. So, so my, my more general question is, um, so whenever I present like evolutionary arguments to, to undergrads, so sort of thinking about it in, in my teaching, that I think that there's a, there's a, an intuition that they have that like, if something exists, then it must be evolved. Uh, yes. And and I, I think that this is a similar fallacy that, that a lot of researchers fall into. That like, if there's a phenomenon, then there must be an evolutionary reason like why that totally phenomenon is true. Yeah. And and this is my my broad. I guess it's like a two part thing. Uh, this is my broad critique of like evolutionary psych that we. It seems that there's an implicit assumption, or maybe not. Not not implicit. <laughs> there's an automatic <laughs> assumption. Yeah. Uh, that. Like if if a phenomenon exists, then there must be like a, a an evolutionary reason why that phenomenon exists, and I'm I'm not convinced that that need be true. Um, yeah. The other thing that the other piece that that I, I would like to maybe unpack a little bit with us is when we talk about something being evolved. Um, I wonder if like what what would both of you think about. Are we talking about this in terms of like a sort of classic biological evolution, in which case like, like sperm competition is 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 really uh, meaningful? Yeah. Or are we talking about this in terms of a sort of social evolution about uh, sort of some people or practices are more fit to adapting right. to particular social structures? Because right. I, I think that these are, or at least in my mind, like these are both sometimes folded in under the broad heading of yep. Evo Psych, but they're yep. actually referring. To yeah, so I think a starting point with that is that this goes back to Dawkins' original idea of a meme. Uh, and, you know, Susan Blackmore, I believe it's Blackmore, sorry if it's not, um, also really fleshed this out in the book called The Meme Machine. But the, the basic idea is that uh, biological evolution's currency, so to speak, a gene, right? Genes get replicated and passed on. Uh, memes are the social equivalent. So they're ideas or concepts or even stereotypes that have the ability to replicate quickly. Mm-hmm. and propagate themselves within culture. Um, so a little different than how we colloquially use meme. It's yeah, not yeah. an image macro. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's important. And you're right. I think a lot of people do 
conflate those two things. And that's dangerous because, uh, I mean, even Dawkins alludes to this, that memes emerge and replicate much faster than genes do. Uh, and a lot of times we forget that. A lot of times we forget that it took you know, millions of years of evolution just to get to our first human ancestor. Right. Or I should say billions in that case, but human ancestors have been evolving for millions of years. So I think we forget that when we start thinking about broader findings in evolutionary psychology. And and this I, I think is relevant because when we think about a lot of a lot of the though not all, I wanna I wanna be clear, uh, but a fair amount of sort of the application of, of evolutionary psychology to explaining social behavior, for example, is Sort of in that more more meme domain, yeah. not not the biological sort of gene domain, yeah. and and I think that that leads to a, a sort of error of if it exists, it must be adaptive in some way, and and I think like this goes back to Smith's like core critique that this leads to a bunch of just so stories that right. oh this is present and it must be present because it was adapted for us to take you know X Y and Z type right. of. Uh, uh, attacked in, in the past, um, and I, I guess, I mean, my core thing is like I just don't find that convincing. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of things that, like, both like our, our physiology has that have no adaptive reason right. for them. Um, there are all sorts of social uh, behaviors that we engage in that may have been adaptive at one point, but are no longer uh, especially adaptive for right. us. I. And I think, like, yes, we can fit an evolutionary story to these, but the question is whether or not the evolutionary story is a good starting point uh, for for generating sort of novel predictions. And, yeah, like, and that, that, that's yeah. where we started. Right. Yeah. And that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that you that you you said there. Yeah. There's a lot that to, to unpack, and I don't want to like pile on, but apparently I'm just going to also pile on with that. Uh, that, that like I think getting at what you were saying that in terms of things that that um, uh, perspectives that, that that it might have trouble with is any time that there's a lot of variability, sure, right? Of you know, what's the evolutionary reason for the many different color eyes that we might have? And it's like, well, you can because like, hazel eyes are genetically superior. superior. Yeah, yeah. Yes, coincidentally, which uh, color eyes do you have? I, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're <laughs> color of like brownish green. That's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so I think that there there are times where, right, where that might be, life. yeah, where that might be a, a little more of a challenge where variability is. But I mean, I, not always. But so it's all that you, you you touch on that. But that, that's the idea of that. Like there there are there are some things that I agree that people would latch on to some phenomenon that people might latch on to that it's like well clearly this has an evolutionary perspective. Why, why do people sometimes help each other even though it might come at the cost of their own well being? Right. Oh, that must be an so, evolutionary benefit. It to costly signal overall, blah blah, yeah, yeah, and and then that's fine. That may be true, but it might not, and it's just easy to to make that just so so story after the fact. So I think there's three things on the table that yeah. I want to unpack. Yeah. Uh, there's just so stories. Okay. There's um, now I'm losing it. Um, how can we make predictions from an evolutionary yep. point of view, and how does that explain so much variability? Yeah. All right. So let's maybe go in that order. Uh, just to be absolutely clear, just so story would be something like saying, uh, well, the human skeleton by color is white. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
there must be some advantage to that. Maybe it uh, reflects more sunlight or something like that. Yeah. Some whatever kind of idea yeah. that you can see to fit. Um, whereas the real reason for that is that it's primarily made of calcium. Calcium in its solid state is, yeah. is white, right? So you can get <laughs> you can get hung up on on that, and I think often people do work backwards and, and come up with those just so yeah. stories. But if you're savvy, it's you can unpack those things pretty easily, and those arguments fall apart pretty quickly. Um, you know, you can just simply test them, right? Is it is it advantageous in some way? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. How, how do you, so, like, let's say, why do we have five fingers? I don't know, six was too many and four was not enough. You could say five was the right number. How do you test whether five is the, the best evolutionarily advan- advantageous So, six-fingered man got killed off by an Inu Montoya, so, done deal. Done, okay, yeah. right. So, uh, that's Princess Bride, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, Princess Bride aside, um, how, how would you test that? That's, I think that's a good question. So let me. Uh, so my short answer is I don't know. Okay. Let me, let yeah. me walk back. But yeah, yeah. in walking back, I'm going to address the question of variability and, and what function that is. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so we have to keep in mind that evolution by natural selection is not a perfect system. Yeah, it, it does not produce. And I, I, I'm even guilty of using this language as I was talking about stuff earlier. It does not produce the optimal. Yeah, it produces the functional. It produces something that works. Um, and if it works above and beyond what's in the pool, then it propagates. And if it's functional enough, then it gets to become an adaptation or species-wide or even cross-species, like, f- for example, eyes. Right? We see eyes in a number of different uh, species. Um, so it may not be a question so much of is it five versus six digits on any one hand as is it that we have opposable, opposable thumb yeah. and otherwise relatively opposable digits. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so from this we know we are evolved to play the piano. Yes. yes. There you go. Yeah. That's why we have base ten counting systems, all that stuff. <laughs> right. That's why it works. Yeah. That's why base ten. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, all, people do make that argument. Um, See, I don't know if we should focus so much on the the, the fine grain uh, aspects of the adaptation. And when I say we could test it, I was just testing the the broader functionality of it. Um, so, is it advantageous for us to infer, uh, for example, I was just talking about this today in class, someone's sociosexuality, which sociosexuality is kind of sexual openness. There's a range from uh, being willing to engage in low commitment sort of relationships all the way to the opposite of you must have commitment and uh, investment before you're willing to engage in, in sexual behavior with that mm-hmm. person. Uh, would it be advantageous for us to have some mechanisms that track that? Yes. right. Because if you're someone who is highly uh, open, is what we would call it, or less restricted, then you probably want to be <laughs> engaging in relationships with people that are of a similar sociosexuality. Um, so that was kind of what I was getting at with testing it. Is there some way that we can see that this increases the odds or increases match if it's a sexual or relationship sort of thing, um, is there some sort of benefit that we can track? And if mm-hmm. we can, excuse me, isolate when the conditions for that benefit are there or not, then we can maybe make an argument that that has some adaptive value. Well, I don't know if I'm all over. The yeah, no, 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 no. I think that, that that's good. I, I, and I, a lot of times I'm getting hung up on the um, the specific examples just because I find them interesting. And so yeah. I'm going to derail us on this specific example. So, so what's the why is it important for us to be able to track other so you're saying it's important. Not obviously, there's variability in terms of our. What did you say? Socio. Socio sexuality. Socio sexuality. There's variability. Okay. 
yeah. um, but you're saying it's important for us to be able to track other people's sociosexuality. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Why is that important? Like, like if I'm, um, if somebody is high, I don't want to use high in this example. If somebody's <laughs> high on high that, yeah, yeah. If somebody, high somebody's like low, like they're, they'll just do with anybody. Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be beneficial for them to reproduce? No, but I no. think I think Chris is saying like you need a you need a matching. So if you are a particular like, uh, sort of or so relatively open, yeah. then you want to figure out well who also yes. is is relatively open because people who are relatively restricted, even if you're open, they are not like in fact the fact that you're open and they're restricted, uh, the fact that you're open is going to make you less appealing yeah. uh, to them, and so you need to be able to identify who has a similar type of sociosexuality. Yeah. And then like copulate with those people. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, I mean, I, that, 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 that was my read, but is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that'd be fair. Yeah. 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 No, I, yeah, I guess I, I, I could say that. I was curious. Like I said, I was going down the, the little rabbit hole of, of other specific ideas. Yeah. Anyway, what are you saying? So I, I wanted to, again, I guess like back out and ask a more general question. So I think evolutionary psych has such an interesting pull on particularly. So when, when we're teaching, I think that when we, when we tell evolutionary stories, that has an especially strong pull for our our undergraduates yep. and I'm curious how both or, or either of you approach that in your classes about sort of fencing it or I mean or do you fence mm-hmm. it like how do you present like an evolutionarily uh, an evolutionary model so that it is both sort of correct um, and that, that students sort of don't overgeneralize it yeah so short answer is I, I do fence it a little bit and I, I think that's kind of my take on all of this um, some of my more hardcore EP folks have probably they had some arguments against what I've said already, but that's because uh, I do try and strike that balance. I do try and give some room for that. Uh, you know, so for example, I talk about, um, you know, when I taught evolutionary psychology, one of the things I spent time on was, um, you know, sex differences and, and mate preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would always couch it by saying, well, there are so many other things that go into this, but it, this is one of the things that seems to have some predictive power or it might be, uh, sometimes I'll say it like this, I'll say it like at baseline, and this is kind of what starts the process. Okay, so like all things being equal. Yeah. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I th- and this goes back to our, our uh, question about what predictive power does an evolutionary explanation have? Mm-hmm. I think it can give you those constraints. I think it can give you the range of expectations, and that that at least in my eyes, that's how I've always thought about mm-hmm. it. It's not like the evolutionary argument is going to be the sole argument, mm-hmm. although people say that that should be the case. You know, Dan Dennett talks about evolutionary theories as universal asset that's going to eat through everything and erode all these other possibilities. I don't know if we can go that far, um, but I do think that it can give us uh, at least some constraints in terms of what we can expect from basic human psychology and evolved human psychology. I do really like that idea of, of evolutionary psychology, like providing a, a constraint condition. Yeah. Um, and, and that might even be sort of a, a way out of, of Smith's original critique that um, evolution, so I feel like the the hit against evolutionary psychology is that like you can tell an evolutionary story about anything yes. if you if you chose to. And that, that gets to like the just so story right. critique. Um, but 
if you have sort of an, uh, an existing theory that says, okay, we have a certain set of possible predictions, then you can take that theory and you can fence it with an evolutionary theory and say, okay, uh, we have like these, I'm just going to make up numbers, but they're like seven possible predictions. Yeah. But evolutionary theory would suggest that like three of those predictions are broadly maladaptive. And, and so you can sort of use them to screen off things. But but would you agree that like, I, I, don't, I don't think you want to, well, I, I don't have the words in your Would you go so far as to say like evolutionary psychology like should not stand on its own? Because like my example, like puts evolutionary psychology as a collaborator with other theories. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> um, I think it should be more of a collaborator. Again, I, I'm, I might be more middle of the road with some of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the folks that I learned from, I think would take a harder stance on this. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it can generate predictions, but it can also call some predictions like mm-hmm. you were talking about in that model. Um, so I think it's, it's part of the variance. It'd be a strong predictor and a regression model, so to speak. <laughs> um, but uh, it, we need other things there. We need other things that can guide that and temper that. Um, and uh, I don't think that's wholly damning against evolutionary psychology because we're seeing, um, you know, all sorts of examples of things that we would expect and that are totally in line with what evolutionary theory would suggest that get refuted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I was just listening to Radio Lab and they were talking about duck penises. Oh, uh, I love, yeah. like, the duck reproductive system. It's just amazing. I'm it's just sorry. Like, as, as a former Oregon duck, I have <laughs> a special place in my heart for ducks. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, their reproductive systems. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, and they're a unique case because a lot of other bird species don't have penises, right? Both the male and the female have a cloaca, mm-hmm. right? And they basically uh, kind of become, come in contact and then the sperm are transferred to the female. Um, and you, you think that'd be a non-optimal sort of thing, but um, what they're seeing is that there's some evidence that that could cut down on ability to fly. It's costly in other ways. So there's these trade-offs, but from a, a pure Darwinian, uh, like just straight from the text explanation, we would say, no, a penis makes a lot of sense because it brings the sperm closer to the ovum. Uh, or, yeah, uh, so... And it may even, you know, facilitate its movement through the reproductive tract. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can blind ourselves if we take too narrow of that evolutionary approach. And I think the nuance comes from pairing an evolutionary approach with another approach. Uh, and I think humans are also a unique case because we're uh, our strategy throughout evolutionary history, if we want to call it that, has been kind of middle of the road. We're not particularly adapted at any one thing. So sometimes when we start talking about adaptive value of a, of a certain trait, it does doesn't necessarily pan out for you. Yeah, one. I mean, I don't know. This is getting to maybe I'm just like restating some of the things that that you guys are saying. But it it gets to one of my my concerns is that like let's say we we get to that that idea that you were talking about Monroe, where you you have these seven different predictions. Let's Mm -hmm. just say again randomly picking a number. And, and then um, evolutionary perspective like cuts out three of them and so we, we have these others, others that are remaining and then, then we actually try to test that in some way and then let's say what happens is actually one of the three that um, the evolutionary perspective uh, ruled out. I mean it's just that idea of yeah. like wait don't you know shouldn't all things be in a particular way because that's got to be advantageous. These other um, 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 birds that, that don't have that, that that should be a problem and, and it's just like oh well that, that, that's crazy that that's different. And it's like, oh, 
crap, I guess we were wrong, so then we have to do something different. And and I don't know if maybe I'm like being too critical, because of course we have all sorts of theories that, that have, yeah. have problems, but it's just like, then what was the benefit of, well, of, we never really learned anything by ruling out those three, because then one of them happened to be it anyway. No, I mean, in that case, you'd say, okay, so if, if something is sort of, uh, so by, by saying, like, okay, there would be seven different predictions, mm-hmm. four of them are sort of favored by an evolutionary model, yeah. and three of them are not. And then if you get one of the, the three that aren't favored by an evolutionary model, then that suggests. So I, I still think that's informative because it'd say, well, that suggests that there is something else going on here. And so we still need to find like the theory that then yeah. would explain it. Mm-hmm. But we would suggest but that shows like, okay, so this isn't something about sort of genetic adaptivity, or this isn't something about sort of social selection writ large, but there's some other factor that explains this. So again, like I think it can be it can be helpful for sort of screening or setting up uh, yeah I guess screening predictions Mm -hmm. but I guess where I'm where I'm still like skeptical of evolutionary psych is that it is something that can fully stand on its own. I guess like you and I agree on on that piece, but but I think that it could be a useful way of, of screening out and saying, okay, so if we think something is adapted, or if we think that it, it sort of facilitated reproduction, then that generates certain types of prediction. And if those don't tend to be true, then it suggests like some other mechanism at work. Um, yeah, but I, I mean I can see that that it can help narrow down mechanism. Yeah. But it could be informative in terms of like, oh, well, is this something that is driven by reproductive evidence, something being reproductively advantageous, or is it driven by some other, whether it be social norm, whether it be whatever it is. So I guess I can see that. Again, that's in the after the fact. Right. but, But yeah. So... What I, I wanted to ask was, um, do do you think, so to your minds, are there particular domains that you think evolutionary psychology, uh, and maybe like with regard to teaching, uh, evolutionary psychology is especially apt um, to sort of explain things for students versus are there areas where you think evolutionary psychology is is less well adapted to, to sort of explaining things to students? I, I have an example of sort of where it's more advantageous and and this is um, we were just talking about it in, in my class that's why it's more salient is is when we were talking about um, emotions and and I make the point that emotions are this kind of adaptive thing we have them for a reason they're helpful even negative emotions and, mm-hmm. and I think that really resonates with the students for, for a lot of reasons and one of the reasons that I really like it is like you know when you tell people like no like you know anxiety and fear and these these you know sadness and whatnot, right. these negative emotions that you have, that's okay and it's good. It's it's your body alerting you to, hey, something's wrong, make a change, right. do whatever. There's um, a and, tiger. And, yeah, there's a tiger, run yeah. away, you know. And and that's adaptive and that's helpful and, and it almost like makes them more comfortable with like, oh, I feel those negative emotions, that's okay. And, and, and so it does kind of, I don't know, make it a little bit more... Um, I don't know, palatable that they, they experience those types of, of emotions. And so so I do like using it from that perspective. Now, I will say, I don't say, now, from an evolutionary perspective, this is an ad, uh, adaptive thing, and, and obviously people who experience these emotions are more likely to have, you know, um, um, kids than people who didn't. I obviously don't take it quite to that extent, but, but I do like um, describing some things as, hey, this is functional. It's okay. Even though you might want to avoid 
avoid this instance of avoid anxiety, avoid fear, avoid no. But it's functional that your body experiences those emotional responses. I think that's helpful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's useful. But again, I, I'm not taking a full on evolutionary perspective, but it's still it's the, that function. But like framing in terms of like yeah. evolved adaptivity. Yeah. yeah, Chris. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples that I've used when I'm not teaching an evolutionary psych class. Um, yeah, I think when I talk about personality, sometimes I'll talk about it from a biological approach. Uh, so uh, there's mm-hmm. rough evidence on the fact that some traits are partially heritable, yeah. and you know I talk about why that might be advantageous. Uh, so, for example, you know if you're you're, you're more agreeable, maybe there's some evolutionary advantage to that. Again, I don't want to just so story the crap out of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but you can you can kind of set that logic up, and then it gives more credence to the fact that there is some heritability in these traits. Um, I mean, mating would be a big one. I think there yeah. there yeah. is some stuff that you can really show in terms of evolutionary perspectives on why we choose the partners that we do, like why attractiveness, yeah, why certain yeah. relationships work out. Um, I mean, okay. e- even talking about general attractiveness, like what what is attractive versus what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you do have to. Address the fact that there's cross cultural variability and what's attractive and what's not, but um, even that you could find, and I think people have made evolutionary arguments for um, where it's. I, I don't want to totally negate everything I've said before, but where where it falls apart, I think, is where it gets into like the more nuanced sorts of things, uh, and that's why I said I think it's helpful in terms of setting parameters and then you fine tune with other theories, um, and you know, often when I talk about attractiveness and preferences and stuff like that someone will say well what about a non-hetero sort of interaction yeah. and, um, you know I, I have friends from my PhD program that have looked at that and there, there are you know evolutionary underpinnings of those sorts of things mm-hmm. but um, that that doesn't always jive with lived experience of people yeah. uh, and I also am very cautious in the sense that I don't want people thinking that you know everything about evolutionary psychology is totally prescriptive or even restrictive like it like it must must be this way because it has this adaptation or adaptation. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you can find times where it does work to bring that in. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good, I mean, earlier you were, you were talking about how, um, it's one of the influences. Yeah. You're obviously not trying to suggest that it's like, this is the only thing that influences people's yeah. behavior. And, and so that's a good thing when people do bring up some of these, um, examples that, that even if they are just like some anecdotal counter example, um, that's fine. You don't want to necessarily, you know, for the, for the particular student, yeah. just to just demean that in, in, in a partic- any particular way. But also just kind of remembering that, yeah, it's just like, well, no, this is one of the factors that influence it. But of course, there are going to be many different influences on any particular behavior. And I feel like that that's maybe like a good place to to land to say, yeah. okay, well, all things being equal, like yeah. obviously, like individual differences matter, social norms matter. Like there are, it's psychology. There are going to be multiple yeah. uh, uh, things that that impact this factor. But sort of all of those things set equal. Uh, there is still, especially like in the domain of like attraction uh, attractiveness there's still going to be there uh, there are evolved preferences that we have we prefer symmetrical faces um that like relatively like rounded faces versus relatively like hyper 
masculine, square-jawed faces signal different types of, of characteristics mm-hmm. about your mate. Um, but I think that like the right way, again, Chris, as you said, like to defense it is to say all this is this is sort of ignoring all of the or sort of it's sort of setting equal all of the important nuances about preferences about culture all these things so we're saying like setting all those things equal these evolutionary preferences still explain unique variants yes and i think a lot of evolutionary psychologists would say well you're just you're you're proving the point of evolutionary theory by saying well it sets the constraints or it explains some of the variants because for evolution by natural selection to work you have to have variability Mm -hmm. you have to have that nuance that we're not affording to evolutionary psychology we're we're affording it to you know some uh, a theory from social psychology and i think an evolutionary psychologist might say well yes but that just reifies the point that we have to have variability across species within species for evolution and financial selection to occur so yes it's a little more nuanced than those like baseline predictions would be um but it's still in line with the general sense of evolutionary psychology i think that's why people often talk about kind of like the different strata of theory in evolutionary psychology so like there's kind of general evolution by natural selection and then uh, there's what are called like mid-level theories like life history theory you know arguing that uh, we have limited biological resources and as the environment shifts even within a species it can be more or less strategic to you know allocate certain things towards reproduction versus allocate things towards uh, accrual of resources or maintenance of one's own uh, body so I think that's one reason why people have have set out those kind of different strata of theory is that it allows for nuance beyond those base predictions of oh it's it's sex and reproduction or mm-hmm. it must carry some adaptive value right. because to continue with life history theory or speed the adaptive value is going to be different from each environment so I think even evolutionary psychology has tried to find those things that fine tune kind of those base or overarching predictions but I would still argue that I think other fields other perspectives can help further fine tune I think I mean that that's a really good I mean so this is actually helped inform and shifted my attitude okay. about evolutionary psychology. You're explicit or implicit? Uh, my, my explicit <laughs> you know attitude. Okay. I, I know that I have shifted my attitude. Uh, that I think that the, the way that evolutionary psychology is often framed um, both by its proponents and its detractors is as this this really large ubiquitous catch-all explain-all yes. theory and it, it would be interesting to know like how many people actually like believe in that view yeah. but the the view that you're presenting is well evolutionary psychology is maybe more limited than that it is something that can constrain theory it can make specific predictions but some of those uh, those predictions are going to be uh, domain specific yes and yeah. and so maybe like maybe the thing that like we started out with uh, debating was a bit of like a straw man version of like what evolutionary psych is uh, but but I think that it's important to like push back on that straw man view and because I think a lot of people or at least like a lot of our students have this this view that evolutionary psychology means something like if it exists it is yeah. adaptive yeah and and I think that like that is something that like we should not be fostering yeah totally. and I mean that's I mean we've, we've continually come back to that I think in a lot of the different areas that we, we've discussed nuance is key I've, exactly yeah. that, that was literally what I was thinking was just that I mean yeah it, it's it's more nuanced than that it, it's not a yes or a no it's well yes it's informative however 
there are other factors that also influence things. And, yeah. and I mean, this is getting a little bit of an aside, but, but the, that's the challenge of teaching, right? It, it's, it's easy to say this is the way it is and it's always like this, yeah. but of course that's never true. <laughs> um, and yeah. so therefore teaching the nuance and getting people to understand that the nuance is, is the goal. Yeah. And I think adding to that, uh, kind of talking about like what people come in and what their intuitions are and even setting up a straw man of evolutionary psychology. What, what, one of the straw men of evolutionary psychology could be that as soon as we say something's adaptive, it's always, you know, perfectly optimal and it yeah. functions mm-hmm. greatly, you know, like it, there's, there's no cost. Yeah. Um, but the, the more nuanced take on that is yes, there are costs. It can still be adaptive mm-hmm. and be costly. Yeah. You know, for example, our species largely walks upright, you know, and when you walk upright, as opposed <laughs> as opposed to being uh, quadrupedal, your birth canal narrows, right? If you're a female, right? So there's, there's a cost to walking upright. It's adaptive for a number of reasons, but it's still coming at a cost. And this goes back to my earlier point of evolutionary psychology or evolutionary theory and evolution by natural selection is not what produces the optimal. Uh, and I think we get hung up on the word adaptation or adapt. Yeah. And that justifies some of that initial intuition that people have of like, oh, you know, we, we can explain it. It's 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 evolved, so mm-hmm. it must be true, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be the case once you realize that there can be some cost with those adapt. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that actually wraps it up. One of the few times where I think we've all kind of like come to somewhat of an, a, a middle ground of an agreement. We have reached things. detente. I know. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is impressive. Um, well, yeah. So thank you for um, listening to Marginally Significant, and we will talk with you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is marginallysig at gmail.com, and there's a contact form on our website, which is marginallysig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.